iTunes presents Meet the Author. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome once again to the Apple Store Soho. Uh, we're excited to have you here this evening to attend the latest installment in our Meet the Author series. Uh, this guest speaker series gives authors a chance to share their latest works and participate in a discussion with you, the audience. Tonight, we're thrilled to have John Hodgman joining us to participate in a reading and discussion of his newest book, More Information Than You Require, a further compendium of complete world knowledge which continues where his last book left off the best-selling, The Areas of My Expertise. John will later be joined by his friend and best-selling author of Eat, Pray, Love, author Elizabeth Gilbert. Before we bring her out, please give me a general store-wide freakout for John Hodgman. Good evening. My name is John Hodgman. And I am a very famous minor television personality. Uh, some time ago, you may know me from The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and also a series of television ads for Apple computers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's where I remember you from. Absolutely. Um, and uh, as well, uh, some time ago, I wrote a book called The Areas of My Expertise, a compendium of complete world knowledge. Some people were very skeptical and they wanted to know how could complete world knowledge be contained in a book that was only 236 pages long. The answer is very simple. I was lying. There is more knowledge in the world. It is constantly being generated and as it is generated so I learn it and when I don't have time to learn it I make it up. Um, as well since the publication of my first book my life has gone through a remarkable transformation uh, where once I was a mere professional writer and former professional literary agent through strange fate and unexpected circumstance, I have become, as I say, a famous minor television personality. And so I return to you now with more information than you require, a second book of complete world knowledge, now extra complete on such subjects as the past, as there is always more of it, the future, as apparently there is still some left, all of the presidents of the United States, all of the secrets of Hollywood, Gambling, what I refer to as the sport of the asthmatic man. Strange encounters with aliens, how to buy a computer from a street vendor, how to cook an owl, and most other subjects. So this is the new technology. Does any of you have my old book by any chance? Do you have it with you by any chance? You have it with you? Okay, would you just toss it up here, please? I don't want that anymore. It's garbage to me. That's garbage. That's, that's old. It's time to update to what I refer to as Complete World Knowledge 2.2. Just come out today. More information than you require. You will see that this upgraded technology is a hardcover book. This is legitimately hard. It is ponderous and heavy to carry. That's why you should buy it. Uh, it also contains a lot more information in it that was not contained in the first book. For example, I tell you how to tell the future. Um, well, I told you how to tell the future in the first book, too, but I didn't predict that I would tell you how to tell the future in this book. So there are still some surprises left, you see, in the future. Um, tell you how to rid your house of all kinds of uh, common pests. Uh, tell you how to read all sorts of poker tells. Um, I tell you about all sorts of uh, hangover cures that involve gin, uh, because those are the best, frankly. And uh, also it contains in it a handy device. In the, in the previous book, which you see lying here on the floor where it belongs, um, there are many editions of this book, the hardcover book and the, the paperback and the deluxe $90 coffee table edition of the book and, and um, the electronic edition of the book, which exists somewhere on the internet, and um, the audio edition of the book, and then the special deluxe audio edition of the book where I come to your house and read it to you. Um, but for all of those editions, there never was a, um, a page-a-day calendar edition of the book, and that, that made me very angry. Um, and so I decided that with this new book... Uh, I, would, um, I would make it a page-a-day calendar, a preemptive strike, if you will. So do, does anyone have a copy of my new book? I can't use this one because I need to read from it. Okay, gentlemen. I'm sorry, what? Uh, I'll be signing it later. You left, um, 
some, some information about how to hook up your CD player in here. It's your hookup guide. And you could use it, sir. Here you go. I'm just kidding, of course. Oh, it, oh you, marked, uh, you marked this page, 395, right? Why? Is that where you, where you are in the book? You don't have to read it sequentially, you know. In fact, it's sort of better if you just sort of pick and choose throughout. It doesn't even contain complete sentences. You can really start from the back and read to the front. In fact, you don't even have to read it at all through a special arrangement with the publisher. If you buy a copy of my book, it, it, it releases you from the obligation to read it. But if you will see, as I'm going, what is your name, sir? Uh, Samuel. Hey, Samuel, how are you? Good. So if you were leafing through my book, as you're reading through, you probably notice that there are dates on every page, starting with the first day of the year, October 21st, which is when this book was published. The traditional Hajmanian calendar. And, um, and thus, it is, it, this is a handy page-a-day calendar as well as a book. And I figured as long as I was putting the dates in there, I would, um, I would uh, uh, you know, put in a little handy little fact that you might enjoy knowing that happened on that date, except that it didn't happen because I made it up. So I would normally turn to uh, November 21, um, but I'm more fond of November 20th. Um, and see, if you open up your book, you can follow along here, November 20th, 1975. George C. George C. Scott turns down the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars when George Lucas refuses Scott's demand to perform the role in the nude. It's true. If you ever saw Patton, you know he liked to act in the nude. And then since it's a page-a-day calendar, after you're done reading that, you can just go ahead and tear this page right out, just like that. And that's how you can enjoy it. Here you go, sir. Uh, the nice thing about my book is that I arrange for the publisher to uh, produce many duplicate copies. All of the copies are identical, so I would suggest that maybe you buy two. One that you can tear apart as you read it, like a page-a-day calendar, and one that you tear apart in the traditional way. You always tear apart your books when you read them. So that's a very handy uh, item in the new book, but I think most people are most curious about um, other how-to stuff that I have in the book, including how to become a famous minor television personality. People wonder, how did it happen in my life that I became a famous minor television personality and started wearing a tuxedo all the time? You may notice I'm wearing a tuxedo. I own this tuxedo. I don't rent tuxedo like you people do. <laughs> this is my tuxedo. It was given to me by GQ magazine. I used to write for GQ magazine back when I was a writer, and I would write about sword canes and snuff and barber jackets and, oh, anything that a gentleman might be interested in on a quarterly basis. That's why they call it GQ magazine. <laughs> and so I was asked to a black tie event actually to honor Liz Gilbert. Um, and it was like I had 24 hours to get a tuxedo, so I called my editor at GQ and said, um, can you tell me where I can rent a tuxedo very quickly? Because back then I did that sort of thing. I would rent tuxedos. It was awful, awful life that I lived back then. And, uh, and he said, well, give me your measurements. And I did. And then a little later on, he called me and he said, we have a tuxedo for you, for you to keep. I was like, why? And he said, you're on television now. That's what happens. <laughs> it's true. That's what television is like. Of course, he got it for me five days after the event, so I couldn't go to the thing, I'm afraid. But... So, um, and so people want to know, how did that happen in your life? And so I wrote about it in the book, and I'm going to, to read a little of it to you now. No, that's not it. Here it is. If you, uh, if you heard any portion of this uh, essay on This American Life, um, do not distress. This is the director's cut, the extended cut, with lots of extra materials in it and a lot more information than you require on the subject of Battlestar Galactica. Uh, until recently, my only experience with Los Angeles was as a child. I had gone as a child with my father on a, to California, and I went to Universal Studios tour. And this had to have been before 1985, because I remember that they still had the Battle of Galactica ride in operation at the time. I'm sure you all know the Battle of Galactica ride, right? This is what, a dark ride what we call in the amusement park trade a dark ride. I'm not in the amusement park trade, I'm just an enthusiast, but we call it a dark ride, which is to say, instead of going on a roller coaster or a Ferris wheel, which is fun, instead you sit in a boat or a moving thing and you go through a dark tunnel and look at stuff that you don't care about. That is a dark ride. And in this case, you are on a tram 
um, going through the back lot of a movie studio which you had paid to see and were interested in and then suddenly the tram would take a right turn and you got shuttled off to a kind of weird crappy space station. And once you're in the fake space station, fake robots fire fake lasers at you and it's not scary at all. And then two men wearing space helmets come out to rescue you. And that was the ride Battle of Galactica. I have to stress that the two men who bound out and rescue you were actual men, actual living men, not animatronic creations. Actors, I suppose you would call them. And they would rescue humans dozens of times a day, day after day after day after day, but always in total silence. Always in total silence because their dialogue, they had dialogue, but their dialogue had been pre-recorded years before, presumably by other better actors. I thought this is a remarkable way to torture these poor actors, to make them listen to someone else do their lines. And it amused me then as a child, as it amuses me now still. It was the best part of the ride, frankly. They closed that ride not long after my visit because the TV show it was based on was canceled and because strange live space mime TV... Um, sorry. They closed that ride not long after my visit because the TV show it was based on was canceled and because weird live space mime attractions went out of style at amusement parks. I may have been the last to see it, and after the ride was over, I sat down on a bench to ponder and absorb this historic moment. And that is when it happened. That is when I was approached by a grown man who was dressed up as Charlie Chaplin. Now, it may be some people's dream in life to meet Charlie Chaplin. It may even be some people's dreams to meet people dressed up as Charlie Chaplin. But it was not my dream, for even at the age of 10, I found Chaplin's work to be pretty maudlin and cheap. He was no Buster Keaton, and as he approached me then, I considered saying so to his face. But there was a problem. I had terrifically long hair at the time. It was an affectation, a ridiculous affectation. I regret it, but it was not as ridiculous, I suspect, as dressing up as Charlie Chaplin, even for money. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was that because I was a child and had no beard or mustache, I was frequently mistaken for being a girl. And this caused all sorts of embarrassing situations, like double takes whenever I'd walk into a men's bathroom, or being people insisting that my name had to actually be pronounced Joan Hodgman, uh, or being expected, for example, to kiss Charlie Chaplin on his white powdered cheek. These sorts of things happened all the time in my life. And so it came as no surprise to me, after some predictable cane and bowler hat shenanigans, that Charlie Chaplin sat down next to me and indicated silently that he was ready for me to kiss him. I did not want to kiss Charlie Chaplin. But let's just say they didn't call him the little tramp for nothing. <laughs> he waited me out. It was clear that I was powerless. It was clear what was going to happen. And I'm not proud of it, but I just let it happen. And that was my introduction to Los Angeles, a traumatic, silent comedy, same-sex date rape. <laughs> At the time, I had no idea why someone would expect a complete stranger to want to kiss him on the cheek just for showing up and sitting down, but now I understand. Now I understand because now I am on television. People ask me all the time, how is it that you came to be on television? And my answer is always the same. I went on television. That's pretty much how it happened. I went on television once. I went on television to promote my previous book of fake trivia, the areas of my expertise, on a popular fake news program. And then they said, would you come back and do some comedy? And I thought they were joking. But now, about two and a half years later, I'm pretty sure they weren't joking. And then I got a call a couple months after that happened, very, very soon after I started doing stuff on The Daily Show, asking would I be interested in auditioning for this ad, for these new ads for Apple Computer. And I said, oh, sure, absolutely, because I thought it would make a funny story, you know, to tell you people here in 2008 about the crazy audition that I went on for the job that I never in a million years would get. But then I got the job, and it ruined the story, and I'm sorry. But that's what happens sometimes. Life happens. It's your pretty typical mundane overnight Hollywood success story with the exception that in my case it actually more or less happened overnight over a very very short period of time about three months my entire life changed and it felt it changed entirely by accident and as a result I am older and fatter and more wall-eyed and tweedy than most people who are starting out a career in television I'm not being modest when you are in television, you don't just see the pose that you perfect for yourself in the mirror. You see yourself from all angles, clearly and cruelly, as if you were in someone else's body. You see yourself as you actually are. They say the television adds 10 pounds. Actually, in my case, it subtracted five, and it looked terrible all the same. <laughs> Here are some of the words that internet blogs have used to describe me. The pudgy John Hodgman. 
Chubby John Hodgman. The round-faced PC. Tubby John Hodgman. Portly John Hodgman. And Cutie. That was the anomaly. That one came from an internet website that includes a regular feature that maps celebrity sightings in New York City. It is called Gawker Stalker. If any of you are internet users, you may have heard of it. This man is nodding. This is the one internet user here. Yes, exactly. Nice to see you, sir. Are you, do you follow me on Twitter? Fantastic. Good. What's your handle? Don't stay long. What? Don't stay long. Don't stay long? Don't worry. I'm almost done. In this case, the anonymous tipster wrote into Gawker Stalker that I had been seen, accurately, that I had been seen taking the B train south from my observatory in the Upper West Side, where I then lived. Um, here's how it felt from my point of view. It was just a normal day. Uh, I had wear been wearing my brown jacket and my brown jeans. I remember because a neighbor of mine said that it made me look like a UPS man. And I was taking the subway you know, just minding my business, just casually deciding to never speak to that neighbor again, when all of a sudden the subway stopped and the door opened and a woman got on and she gave me a double take, which I now recognize very well. That's sort of like, I know you from somewhere, what are you doing in here kind of look as though I were a girl going into a men's bathroom, for example. Same sort of look. And then the train stopped again and a man got on and he gave me the same sort of look again. Now, which one was it? Which one of these two fellow travelers was the anonymous tipster I'll never know. Neither of them seemed particularly drunk or insane, but one of them must have been the one who told the internet that I was a cutie. They also went on to tell the internet that I looked like a UPS man. <laughs> so here's a tip from the stars, fashion tip from the stars, never wear brown jeans. After that, these unexpected brushes with fame in which unexpectedly I was the famous person started happening with some frequency. Sighting. The Radio Shack, Big Y Plaza, Greenfield, Massachusetts. The young guy at the counter asked me to autograph an old receipt. What are you doing here, he asks, in a voice that contains a host of further questions, such as, what are you doing in Massachusetts, in Greenfield, at Radio Shack? The answer, of course, speaker wire. I'm, a, I'm only human. I need speaker wire. I can't move sound through the air. Citing Northwest Airlines flight from Philadelphia to Minneapolis. Soon after closing my eyes to go to sleep, I hear a click and see a flash. The inside of my eyelids light up blood red and I open them and I see across the aisle a 10-year-old child putting his camera away. A 10-year-old child was taking a picture of me while I was sleeping. I presume for some sick website that he runs. I ask for him to be removed from the plane, but my request is denied due to us being in the air already as if I didn't know already. The Museum of Television and Radio, New York City. I go to a party to celebrate the new season of Battlestar Galactica, not the old version that I was talking about that had the ride at Universal Studios, but the new version of Battlestar Galactica in which the robots are erotic, finally. I am here because I had written about the show for a national magazine back when I was merely a professional writer, before I had ever been on television when I was just a fan of the show. And I'm talking to the co-creator of the show and trying to keep it together and not geek out too much and just sort of congratulate him on the show, but he's not listening to me. All he wants to know is how did it happen? How did I go from being a writer about television to being someone on television? And I explain it to him the way I explained it to you just a few minutes ago, except this time as I explain it to him, it starts to sit in, starts to set in this guilt that I feel, this horrible crushing guilt that I would leaped past thousands, millions of trained journeymen actors and performers. I'd never gone on a bunch of auditions. You know, I just suddenly got this job that I didn't earn. I've paid a lot of dues in my life as a writer, as a professional literary agent, as a cheesemonger, as a traffic counter, but never as an actor. I never went on those auditions. I never worked those long hours waiting tables. I never even worked those long hours in absolute silence in the Battle of Galactica ride. I just leapt ahead. And at this moment of existential dread, a waiter passes by with some cocktails and he says to me that he hopes that I am feeling better and I'm worried that he is psychic, that he is sensing that I'm having a, a crisis of identity. But then I realize he's referring to a television ad that I had made in which I pretend to have a sneezing fit. And so I say, oh, I get it, thank you very much. But then like a sneezing fit, it doesn't stop. More and more people come up to me. Suddenly they want to talk about the ads, publicists, journalists, fellow party guests. Soon an Academy Award-winning actress is shaking my hand. 
telling me that I do a good job on television. This is inappropriate. It's very exciting and wonderful in a way, but it's very confusing for me and I think for everybody else. Because now the role that I'm playing at the party is no longer clear. Am I a journalist? Am I a fan? Or am I now some E-list celebrity who's been hired to bring a little E-list buzz to the party? This kind of hierarchical uncertainty is unwanted at any party, never mind a television party. And after a while, I worry that I'm somehow ruining the night for my space friends. So the first moment I get, I sneak away and I go home alone in the rain. True. Sighting, New York City, Soho, this Apple store. General, store-wide freak out. I am asked to pose with people for cell phone pictures for the first time in my life. The store greeter is jumping up and down. She does not believe that it is me. She does not know why I am there. Answer, iPod docking cable. Someone on the staff begins to play a video of me on this giant screen. I am like a mascot walking around a theme park. I am Charlie Chaplin at Universal Studios and everyone wants to kiss me. When you are a young person, particularly of my generation, I'm 21. <laughs> when you are a young person, all of this desire to be famous the, the, and the desire to be on television, it all just feels inevitable. Of course I'm going to be on television. Or maybe if I'm not on television, maybe I'll just be the president or something or an astronaut. You know, it's hardwired into every gland of the young, this ambition and sense of inevitability that you will be known and renowned. But then, of course, you grow older, pudgier, stouter, portly, you have children or you get a job or are drawn by fate to one life or another. Only the deranged don't notice that the opportunities in their lives are dwindling and only the happy look around and say, that's fine, it's fine, it's okay that I'm not a famous minor television personality. At least I wrote this wonderful book of fake trivia. I am a happy man. And then just when you've discarded the last shred of a shred of a shred of the fantasy, say, of becoming an astronaut, it's very unsettling, let me tell you, to hear a knock on the door and have someone come and say, okay, it's time to go into outer space right now. Come with me, don't pack. You don't feel like you belong up there. You put on the space suit and you learn to eat the dehydrated food and you learn to poop while floating upside down, but you never feel like you belong up there orbiting the Earth. Honestly, now that I think about it, you don't even need to go into space to have this vertiginous feeling. You can get the same feeling just by being asked to pretend to go into outer space, say by being asked to do a cameo on the new Battlestar Galactica, which of course is exactly what happened to me. These days when I go to LA, uh, it is not traumatic at all. Los Angeles is a lovely city, especially so if you are on television. I get to stay at a very fancy hotel, uh, the woman uh, greets me uh, at the front desk before I even check in by name. Uh, I stay in rooms where I am told later that famous people died. It's perfect. Very glamorous and perfect. And I see lots of other famous people there. But of course, I, we don't, you know, tattletale on each other. Oh, I'll tell you, Jerry Stiller. I saw Jerry Stiller. He was getting out of the pool and he got into the very small elevator with me and he was wearing a robe and the elevator got very humid all of a sudden, and it felt like I was wearing Jerry Stiller. <laughs> it's not, not an uncomfortable, well, no, it was very uncomfortable, actually, now that I think of it. Very lovely guy, I admire him very much, but I don't need to have his sweat all over me. Um, and then I met someone else as I was checking out one time. Uh, I had a room that had a private entrance to the street, because it was very fancy, you know. And I pulled up my car, and I was bringing my bags out, and then the room next door opened, and a gentleman came out, and I nodded to him because, you know, we were guests in the same hotel. Really, we were neighbors, you know. It's Justin Timberlake. And I said, good morning! And Justin Timberlake did not like that at all. Justin Timberlake literally grunted at me and then jumped back in a non-sexy way. <laughs> he was very scared. And as he walked away from me very, very quickly, I realized in a way that I never could have before what I had done to this poor superstar millionaire. I had made him feel vulnerable and trapped and cornered, and I felt terrible about it. I really did. Even as I was following him down the street, <laughs> screaming his name, trying to take a picture of his vagina, I felt terrible about it. I don't know if I'll get to go and stay in that hotel again. Every time I leave, every time I check out from that hotel, I figure that might be it. That's probably the last time that I get to stay there. That's what I bank on. Because it's reality, you know. Hollywood came along and it cast this like spell on me. 
know, this television spell, and be naive to think that the spell could not break just as quickly, right? That's Hollywood. To be discovered out of nowhere, ride a little ride of fame for a little while, a little dark ride of fame, and then have it all end and be forgotten just as quickly, that's showbiz. And so sometimes now, when I'm feeling a little tired or depressed, you know, I'll admit it, I'll put on my UPS man outfit, and I'll go hit the subway, just to, just to check, see if people still recognize old Hodgman. And it's very embarrassing to admit, but it's true, it happens. And it's even more embarrassing to admit that most of the time people don't say anything. People don't recognize me at all. You know, I'll go on the subway and they'll all be sitting there, all the other passengers, and they'll be reading a book or looking out the window and they'll be thinking about where the train is taking them next. They'll be thinking about their own journey. And I'll get to sit there anonymously and just sort of look at all of them. And I'll think to myself, what is wrong with you people? Don't you have television? I'm sitting right here. Thank you very much. Okay, that was very fun. Thank you very much. But there's one more thing. My friend Elizabeth Gilbert. There's one person who got that joke. Thank you very much, sir. Who is that guy yelling in the back? Okay, anyway. Um, my dear friend Elizabeth Gilbert is here, and she very graciously agreed to join me uh, in these two chairs so that we could have a conversation, and she could ask me some questions, and then I believe you guys can ask some questions too, and then other things will happen. So um, it is a real treat to have her here. Will you please join me in welcoming Liz Gilbert? Hello? Hello? Look at this. Nothing. Magic. Can I have my coffee back? Oh, now you're Hello? drinking it, Margaret? Okay. John said that I was going to join him in two of these chairs. I think that's a little insulting. <laughs> I can only oh, fit you. in one. <laughs> um, hello, everybody. Uh, Hi, Liz. How are you? I'm very well, John. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks. I read your book... Uh, Eat, Pray, Love. Thanks for coming on my show. Your book is fascinating. Oh, yeah. Well, it's great um, to be here. I'm a big fan. It's really great. Uh, you get to New York often? Yeah, I live here, actually. Excellent. We've known each other for many years. Many I'm surprised years. you don't know where I live. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. Um, I've known you? John Hodgman, just to let you know why this apparently odd couple are, are sitting here together. Um, we've been friends for uh, about a dozen years, which in my That's life... That's 12. 12 years. Makes, um, these people are mathematic. I know. Um, in my life, that makes John one of my oldest friends. In John's life, that makes me one of his most recent friends. Um, <laughs> because John is still friends with everybody. Because I'm very old. He's very old. And, yeah. uh, and he, I'm a Highlander. He's still friends with people that he's known since he was 11. And he's married to a woman he's known since he was 14 or something like that. Eight. Roughly, roughly that, yes. <laughs> um, John's loyal. John, John's roots run very deep. And I knew John before he was famous. I knew him before he was a minor television personality. I knew him before he was in Hollywood movies with actual human actors. I knew him before he won the Iditarod. Um, I knew him before he was governor of Brooklyn. And... Um, Honor, honorary, honorary. Before he, he won America's highest that. civilian honor to have a, a repeated spot on The Daily Show. Um, and before he did the Apple ads, in fact, I knew him before he even invented the Apple computer. That's true. Um, I, knew, I knew John a long, long time ago. And so it's, it's interesting for me as an old friend. Recently, uh, I was talking to a neighbor of mine. I live in a small town in New Jersey. And... And somehow I, I told her that I was coming to this event, and she said, you know John Hodgman? And I said, yes, and she said, my son has a frog that he's named John Hodgman. <laughs> As an old friend, I could see naming a frog after John Hodgman, but I know him, you know? Um, this was a 10-year-old kid. I thought that was kind of fantastic. Well, that's going to have to change. I don't, want that. I don't want that frog to be named after me. <laughs> um, Bring the frog to me. <laughs> take care of that. Um, but, but I wanted to share with you, because I know John um, in this longer way, um, something that actually might be very surprising and, and something serious that I, I think is wonderful about him. And I'm going to tell you it tonight. Um, I, you can put your microphone down. You can leave. <laughs> 
Um, John and I met 12 years ago, and we were both in very similar positions in life. Um, vertical. That's a terrible joke. Um, we were we were we were both people who had come to New York from New England settings um, in order to follow the dream of becoming serious writers of literary fiction in the short form. Um, extremely earnest, sincere short stories. Extremely earnest, sincere literary short stories such as you might read in the pages of The New Yorker or Harper's. Um, or extremely sincere literary short story review. Or <laughs> My favorite literary journal of the time. The extremely sincere literary review, monthly, quarterly, mm -hmm. out of extremely sincere literary university right. um, press. Uh, this, the kind of places you have to pay to get your short stories published in. That's the kind of places that we were trying to and get our short it, stories published. And you do it, you love it. And, um, and, and John, I have with me, because John's beautiful wife, Catherine, brought it, the, the Paris Review issue 141, um, which was from the year, the year of winter 1996. And this was the new fiction, new discovery award issue, wherein uh, George Plimpton... May God rest his soul. You may know um, George Plimpton as the pitch man for the Intellivision video game console. <laughs> he, uh, he, he was famous for selling consumer electronics, and uh, he's sort of my, uh, my mentor. <laughs> the Tweety consumer electronic yep. literary pitch man. Yes. Um, he set the tone for that. Anyway, he scooped up all these young writers who he thought were going to make something of themselves. And it says here on the back, uh, you haven't heard of them yet. And in this issue is, is John Hodgman. Who else was in that issue? Uh, Elizabeth Gilbert is also I in I haven't heard issue. of her yet. Um, and a bunch of other people, some of whom Peter we have still heard of. Um, Chris Adrian. Michael Knight. Michael Knight. There's some great writers in here. But, but we went to a party uh, where we were all... But have any of them been on Oprah? <laughs> I mean, this is... It's, I confess that this is rather self-indulgent, but the re the reality is that there was a time when, you, you know, when we met, we were doing the ex almost the exact same thing, or you were doing what I wanted to do, which was you were writing short stories successfully and also writing for GQ mm -hmm. and other magazines and writing wonderful things, and, and then, also bartending, which and is also bartending, really which is also doing. bartending, which I also really wanted to do, but then I realized it was more fun on the other side of the bar. Um, and then, and then, you know, and then I was doing the same thing. We were both freelance magazine writers and writers of sincere, earnest short stories. And then our lives took completely different turns um, to the point that it now seems ridiculous for us to be even in the same room together because we have nothing to do with one another anymore. You have become it is a, a ridiculous be a best-selling be author of nonfiction, and, and that's and, why we often don't go to the same rooms yeah, anymore. That's true. Um, We're not allowed in the same room together. The ridiculousness anymore. of it is overwhelming. Yeah. Um, that's true. We have taken different turns. So now, what I find sad is that it, it, people who don't know that we used to be exactly the same now look and say, why are these two people talking together because they have nothing to do with one another? I heard you all say And I want earlier. nothing to do with you <laughs> now. So. Um, the short story that John wrote in here is wonderful. And what I want to say is that he... yeah. Listen. It's fine. To be published in the Paris Review, you have to, and I say that as someone who's been published in the Paris Review, you have to be extraordinarily good. No, um, <laughs> you, it's, it's, George Plimpton could have chosen from 14,000 other young writers, and, 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 and the fact that, that John's story was in here indicated that he was on the way to a certain path that he very easily could have chosen, and he could have dedicated his life to doing this work. But here's what I also have to say. As also, I'm praising I gave George him, Plimpton $1,000. Um, <laughs> as I'm praising him, I also have to say that the short story that he wrote in here, as well as the one that I wrote in here, but we're talking about him, are stories that a couple other people could have written. You know, no, um, Not true. That, I got a point that I'm building oh, up I'm to. Sorry. My point is that John was exceptionally good, um, serious literary short story writer, but he was in a crowd of people who were also exceptionally good, serious literary short story writers. There are a lot of them. And the way that we were writing at that time was very much like how people like that write. You know, we were young and we wanted to, we were sort of, I wouldn't, I don't even want to say imitating, but we were children of a certain sort of style that, that, that we felt we were inheriting as literary people. And there were a lot of others like us. Um, and that didn't mean that he wasn't very good because he was the best of the lot who were like that. Um, but he wasn't peerless, you know. Um, and, and now he is. And the thing that I've 
told a lot of people about when I talk to young writers and I often use John's story as whatever the opposite of a cautionary tale is, um, I, that, that here is this person who could have very easily continued doing something that was very similar to what a lot of other people were doing, even though he was doing it at the very highest level. Um, but I remember when it started to shift and I remember the time that I was walking down the street in New, in New York and John called me and he had this almost giddiness which isn't normally his his, his, his way of being and um Hello Liz <laughs> I'm just so goofy happy <laughs> he said guess what happened <laughs> and he had this idea and the idea was that he wanted to start something called the Little Grey Book Lecture Series um, based on these uh, books that he had found in an antique store somewhere that, that some guy and I'll paraphrase it wrongly had um, written these little instructive pamphlets back in the early part of the 20th century, um, and each one was a subject, how to, it was sort of to teach new immigrants how to be Americans, right? How to take out a loan, how to um, open your That's own That's what business. those pamphlets were about, yes. Yeah. And John decided to take that idea and create a lecture series that would be a sort of comic um, sort of variety show uh, in an old mayonnaise factory in Brooklyn, and he would invite people, and each one of these lectures would have its own sort of theme, like how to sing in public or how to um, sign contracts. or how, And he would bring writers and musicians and, and comedians and show people and do this, and he would be the MC. And, um, and he said, it's just this goofy thing that I want to do. And, and it, became this, it, it became this thing where people were literally lining up around the block of this mayonnaise factory to hear John Hodgman MC the Little Grey Book Lecture Series. And while I watched those events happen, I watched John on stage create a persona, and the persona that he created was actually John. Um, and, and he went, and it's interesting to watch somebody learn how to be themselves um, in a perfect way, and, and that's what he started to do. So instead of being serious, earnest, young literary guy, exactly like every other serious, earnest, young literary guy, he managed to actually communicate on stage what we who knew him loved about John, which is that he was the funniest person in the room, no matter who was in the room. Um, and it was a particular kind of humor. I think John's the epitome of, of that old adage that there are some people who say funny things and then there are other people who say things funny. Everything John says is funny for some reason. Like he would call me and he would say, Hello, this is John Hodgman calling. And I would start laughing. That's not funny. But there's just something no, about this very dry it's not the way you delivery. Say it. <laughs> and he and he bloomed into him, you know? Um but and let go of all the sort of other pretensions and desires. And then from that stepped into this next idea. Um and I remember I was in Wyoming at an artist residency and he called and he said, I'm gonna write this book of fake. We all trivia. know you were in Wyoming, Liz. <laughs> at an artist residency. <laughs> Fancy. That's actually where I was drying out. Um, but uh, anyway, he called and he said, I want to do this book of fake trivia. What do you think? And John always knows if he wants to get a laugh. He, you probably heard me laughing while he was talking, even though I've heard him read. I think everything John says is really funny. So I'm always the first audience because... Yes, because you're an easy laugh. I always the call easiest. you first. Say, um, what do you think about this idea? I'll be like... Um, see, and he, see, it works. He read me a little piece of what would in the future be um, the areas of my expertise. And it was so strange that I have to sing a song about it. It was so strange <laughs> that I've prepared a dance. Uh, it was so bizarre and warped and brilliant and funny and truly singular. Um, and it's a lesson, I think, anybody out there who is a creator um, that, that, that- I'm gonna use the bathroom, I'll he's, be right back. Okay, gonna <laughs> um, if you can find a way, and I say this in all earnestness, if you can find a way to, to, to figure out how to, how to be a creative person where you create your own persona that is yours, um, people would not have been lining up in droves around the mayonnaise factory probably to read John Hodgman's short stories as good as they were. Um, and I say that with all respect to your short stories. What you've become is, is, is you manifested in writ large. No, I know and that's it's been true because, to watch. Uh, and I that's my speech I tried, about John. I tried that scheme, actually. I tried, <laughs> I tried to get people to line up to... I, I sold tickets for people to come into a room one at a time to read my short story and leave. And uh, people did not, we had very, very, very few subscribers. Yeah, five, five people went for it, and, and four of them were expecting mayonnaise. Because it was a mayonnaise factory, but it, uh, my great regret about that whole experience was that they were not still making mayonnaise, because I like it. 
in, in, in quantities that require a factory. I to have make. to tell you another story about John and his diet, which is not healthy. And maybe it's better now, but back in the day, yeah. John was known for it's things like now. his Sunday night spambled egg party, um, where he would take spam and mix it with eggs and eat it. Obviously. And um, sometime when he was in his mid-20s, he went to see a doctor. I don't know if I should share this story, but he, they took his cholesterol, and the nurse came back with the results, and she was so appalled that this young man, <laughs> who should be in the bloom of health, uh, she, I don't know what cholesterol numbers are. Let's say normal is one. His was like 20. Like whatever it was, it was just absurd. She held the vial of blood in front of me and she said, look at that. You can see the fat in the blood. <laughs> it's true. See how it's sort of yellowish? That's fat in your blood. I'm like, and she said to him. That's right. She said to him, um, <laughs> how is this possible that your cholesterol level could be so high? And she was truly concerned that he was going to die in the office right then. And she said, did you stop on your way over here and have like five hamburgers? And in his very Hodgmanian way, he paused and said, it's possible, what's today's date? I don't remember that story. I remember every story. I like you, um, Liz, because not only do you laugh at anything I say, you often remember things that I forgot that I said. That were funny. What was that thing I said two years ago on this date? I don't remember. Oh, too bad. Um, what I did do tonight was, because John said he's tired of talking about his book, I brought questions because I've branched out now that I'm no longer young, serious, earnest literary person, and now I'm writer of spiritual memoir. Yes. Um, a lot of people send me gifts that are spiritual and, um, and, uh, and about self-discovery. And um, so somebody sent me a, a gift of a, of a game called Gravitas. And I'll read you. It's That's a the name of the game? Yeah, it's called Gravitas. Gravitas? Gravitas is a game of no, discovery of who we are and how we have lived. There is no right or wrong answer, and that's not true. That, in fact, there are many right and wrong answers in life about how you have lived. Is this a um, royal game of India? It's a question, this is a game that causes, it's, it's, it, it needs you to reflect, John. It also says that a certain savoir faire- Is it a pop-o-matic game? Because those are my favorites. <laughs> Unless, there, unless we have some pop unlike, dice soon, Unlike this the game games that John played in his youth, there are no 12-sided dice in this. Um, oh, but snap. You, I can't, just you, can't, think that you can't try to get me with the geek stuff here, not with this crap. <laughs> what, do you think you're, a, you're addressing a jock convention? No way. They, they will turn on you in a the second. Person who's you are about to see some <laughs> vorpal blades turned on you. The person whose birthday is closest to the date die. of play is selected as the opening you know, question. Use one When's your birthday, John? Too, by the way. November. Was that When's June third, nineteen seventy-one? I'm thirty-seven years old. Closer to the date of play, so I'm going to start. What That's I want to do, determine? John, is I want to ask you, you these reflective you spiritual questions, okay. and I want you to answer them very quickly. Yes, lightning round. They Gravitas. say that it is amazing what human beings can put up with. What have you put up with? Who says that? No, they say it is amazing what human beings can put up with. I can put up with this game. Who is your big daddy? My father. He's sitting right there. If you were a big celebrity... Is that really a question? Yes. <laughs> Who is your big daddy? It says it right here. Who's your big daddy? I don't want... Is this a pornographic I thought you were going to say Steve Jobs. He's my other big daddy. <laughs> if you were a big celebrity, if, if, what would you influence your fans to do? What would I influence them to do? Don't repeat the question, John. They can hear it. We have microphones. Um, I don't know. Uh, uh, everyone stand up, turn around once, and then sit down. Ready? One, two, three. <laughs> it's a go. big celebrity. First of all, now I know who my fans are. Thank you very much. <laughs> Second of all, I just saved the world. I'm changing lives. One spinning person who does what I tell them at a time. Next question. Describe a pleasure in which you do not regularly indulge. Um, five hamburgers at a time. <laughs> cosmically speaking, how can you explain your fortunate circumstances? I like that <laughs> well, they assume speaking, that you have fortunate circumstances. What, what would be the other way of sp speaking about it? Comically speaking. Comically speaking about Just it? take out the S. Microscopically speaking about it? <laughs> How do I explain my what? Your fortunate circumstances. Um, I just spent 15 minutes telling the whole story. I'm sorry, Gravitas. Weren't you listening? <laughs> Jeez. You what know, is things happen in life. That's all. 
And this is related. A follow-up okay. question. Great. Why the evil in man's heart? Oh, well. <laughs> it's supposed to be a game. <laughs> there is, is no right or wrong answer. It's the evil. Why the evil in men? That's not even a <laughs> sentence. Never mind a question. Why the evil? <laughs> in this, the word the is assumed to be the <laughs> verb. Why the evil? God, you know what? I have, I have children. I answered these questions for them, not for this game. What else? How much is enough? Enough. That's enough. Enough is enough. We all know that. What has shaped the choices I have made? My need for food and shelter. Next. How would you like to harness your excess body heat? I'm not kidding. (laughs) How would I like to harness my excess body heat? Yes. (laughs) Well, I'm already using it to power my biosphere. Isn't that enough? At what point? And I'm afraid it might be right now. Do you realize a friendship is not working? (laughs) No comment. What do we want from our children? You have children. You can answer this. Um, Clean chimneys and uh, polished shoes. (laughs) If we are what we eat, who are you? Um, I am a cup of clam chowder and a house salad at Finelli's two hours ago. What is the first thing you should do before going to bed with a new lover? Um, brush your teeth. <laughs> give, an, give an example of a question that guys are not good at answering. That one. <laughs> what does it mean to be a prisoner of freedom? What does it mean, John? Can we have the music again? There actually is a, a rock anthem What does it mean to be a this. prisoner of freedom? Mm-hmm. This card seems to presume that there is a saying that you are a prisoner of freedom. Like, as though, that's, no, that's just some, these, like, words that they put randomly together. Park bench and owl. Go. What? Museum of beer. Exactly. Why are there three questions on every card? Well, I just chose the ones I liked the best for you, but you can... What do I need forgiveness for? Taking that card away from Take, me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> complete, the fo- complete the sentence. Follow me, and I will show you. That's good. Period. That's I could just completed it. I don't know why suddenly they want complete sentences. The they didn't have complete sentences before. Um, if you were told to go commando, what would you do? What? I'm not kidding. I would walk around without underwear. <laughs> I'm not stupid. Without, without being too forward, how do you let someone know you're available? Actually, that's a question from someone in the audience. That's a question from someone in the audience. Uh, how do I let them know that I'm available? Without being too forward. I go commando. <laughs> what do men like to whisper about? Um, men like to whisper about... What do men like to whisper about? The prison of freedom. The, pris- the prison of freedom. They like to... I don't know. I don't, pass. What hope is there for an old sinner? Pass. <laughs> What do you understand by the phrase ripeness is all? Nothing. (laughs) Give an example of how your concerns are more interesting than mine. (laughs) Um, I'm concerned that the audience may want to ask some questions. Audience? Are there any questions in the audience? They want one more. Who's driving your bus? I hope someone who has a license to drive a bus. (laughs) Anybody else? Yeah. Maybe we should ask these so questions here's the of deal. people in the audience. Yeah, if you ask me a question, then we ask you a question. It's only fair. So how, how would you like to do I it, Frank? Run the mic All right. Frank is yes. going to run the mic around. There's a fellow in the back okay. there. Maybe, are you going to get there, Frank? I'll race you. <laughs> damn, 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 damn. Go. What's your, hi, what's your name? William. William, what's your question? Um, do you write the Apple ad skits? Uh, no, I do not write... Oh, hello, everyone. <laughs> I'm going over here now. Uh, William wanted to know if I wrote the Apple ad skits. No, the, the, the fine people at Media Arts Lab write the skits. Okay, very occasionally, Justin and I will ad-lib something, and um, it'll make it in, but that's not, not very often. Uh, I'll do this Donahue style. Do you mind, Liz? What's, can I ask can a, question a question to William? William? Uh, William, name one male hang-up that you do not understand. Name one male hang-up that you do not understand. A hang-up that guys have that you just don't get. Take your time. I'm coming back with the mic. It's okay to cry. Give him another one. That, pass. He passes. <laughs> I pass on his behalf. Give him another one. You want another one? Yeah. 
Um, oh, this is good for William. What are the disadvantages of being a superior being? No one ever understands you. Oh, sorry. Oh. <laughs> true. I understand you, William. John, do you want to rove with the mic and yeah. uh, pick up questions who's, there? Who's next? Anybody have a question? Oh, okay, over there. Fantastic. Hello, everybody. I can't run or else I'll get out of breath due to the fat in my blood. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Um, Who are you and, what, and what's your question? My question, my name's Josh. And Hi, Josh. Hi. How Hi, are you? Josh. Hi. Uh, my question is a Twitter slash blog question. Uh, you Go ahead. You recently Twittered about handing over a uh, skull of vodka to um, Will Wheaton, which you would receive from an, another Wheaton who claims not to have a relationship between Will Wheaton. Could you please explain the relationship or not between the two Wheatons who claim not to have a relationship? Uh, I think this is a perfect question for you to ask me on Twitter. <laughs> because no one else here knows what we're talking about. Well, she knows. Well, she, oh, she knows. The person you're with also knows. I'm sorry. I stand corrected. Can I just say that when I <laughs> Not do, only, John, when yeah. I go and do my events at the spirituality kind of places, nobody right. asks blog Twitter questions. This is a blog Twitter question. Crowd. Um, do you all know what Twitter is? Raise your hand if you do. Oh, okay. Very good. All right. Because look at where we are. And so... Uh, there is a product. There are a couple of products that made it important for me to write this book. The first product um, was a product called Dick Van Patten's Hobo Chili for Dogs. Um, in my first book, I wrote a lot about hobos. And so people are constantly bringing uh, products. Yes, exactly. I tore out, I tore out Samuel's page. He can, you want to pass it around so people can say, no, hang on to it. Why don't you? Um, uh, I, I, People were constantly sending me pictures of uh, delis in upstate New York named Hobo Deli, or I have like 25 cans of Hobo Soup. I've never had any of it. Looks great, though. Um, and then someone brought uh, to my attention Hobo Chili for Dogs, um, which really annoyed me because apparently Dick Van Patten uh, is making um, high-quality dog food for hobo dogs now. And that's so implausible and, and weird that it's a joke that I wish I had made up. And it made me very angry that it actually existed because I felt like Dick Van Patten is, you know, stealing my mojo. He is taking food out of my children's mouths and, steal, and you know, giving it to hobo dogs. That's not fair. And then also there was another product that was advertised on the Internet, um, Dan Aykroyd's uh, Crystal Head Vodka. And he made uh, Dan Aykroyd, a comedy legend, made this eight-minute long infomercial talking about his new product, which is vodka that is packaged in the sh a bottle that is in the shape of a crystal skull and all of the paranormal powers that he felt crystal skulls had and that's why you should buy the vodka. And once again, I was like, it was so reminiscent of his old basomatic, like weird Saturday Night Live bits um, that I had to imagine that it was like this incredible deadpan joke. And then um, I looked online and like it, uh, on his website, all he had was this weird film that he had made. It was a very weird film too because um, it had this like totally like homemade, antiqued kind of swan orientation film vibe to it. It was like all backwards, and then all of a sudden they cut to the master distiller in Newfoundland where they're making the vodka because that's where all the best vodka is made. And the master distiller is explaining how um, uh, the the secret of Crystal Head Vodka is that it is distilled. Uh, excuse me, it's filtered three times, and then the guy kind of cringes and he goes, and then. Dan Aykroyd had another idea. What if we filter it a fourth time through diamonds? <laughs> and they did, and I'm like, now nah, this is this has to be a joke. <laughs> you can't filter vodka through diamonds, Dan Aykroyd. That's madness. But it's a real product. It really exists. Which means either Dan Aykroyd is just very sincerely into selling vodka and crystal skulls, or it is an enormous deadpan joke that he took to the extreme level of actually making the product. Uh, and selling it. So that was what the fellow was referring to because at an event in Los Angeles, I had Twittered saying, if anyone will bring me Crystal Head Vodka, um, that would be good. And some people did, and I gave, I gave one to uh, internet superstar Will Wheaton that had been provided to me by someone else named Mark Wheaton, and they are not related. That's all. There's no, no, nothing fancy about it. Would we have a question for this gentleman? Yeah. S keep standing up. Josh, um, if you could give yourself a nickname, what would it be? Hmm. That's a good one. I like it. 
Great talking to you. Hmm. <laughs> Any other questions? Over there? Okay, I'll come around. Go, go ahead and ask your other question, and I will... Think about that, and we'll get back to you, along with nicknames. <laughs> um, I can't go I'm around that way. Okay, here I go. You. Wow, Hello. that's the most exercise I've ever seen. Oh, a French do. bulldog. Hello. <laughs> What's your name? Oh, he doesn't speak English. <laughs> Hi, what, what's your name? Imran. Imran? Yeah, I kind of have a serious question. What advice would you have for someone who eventually wants to write two books? Someday. Start by writing a first book. <laughs> um, but specifically, do you have a problem sitting down and writing things? Um, what kind of book do you want to write? A comic, a, com a, com a comedic book. A comedic book? Uh, okay. Um, how do you do it? Oh, you know what you do? Get a typewriter? Go on Twitter. Go on Twitter. I don't, okay. You don't have a computer? I, I don't. I don't. Okay. Um, what you need to I do, 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 what you need to do in order to write uh, not one, but two comedic books, <laughs> um, and perhaps a third, perhaps. if your publisher enforces its contract with you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Um, uh, you know, right now, anybody who wants to be a writer is in a much better place than Liz and I were in 19, winter 1996. That's 19-06. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you know, it's just amazing to think that wasn't even, uh, you know, 15 years ago. But at that time, you know, we were submitting short stories to journals, you know, typing, putting in, sazy, send out, wait, like up to six months to a year before you heard back. And there was no other way to get your material out there meaningfully unless you create a zine or something, which was obviously a great thing to do, but no one took zines particularly seriously um, because they're garbage. <laughs> and they look and feel like garbage. However, <laughs> now with the, well they do, they're stapled and it's like, I don't want this. And people would try to give you their zines and you're like, no, get away from me, you crazy person. And the, the reality though is that once uh, the internet uh, and the web really started to take off, and uh, particularly in sort of civilian worlds outside of tech worlds in the mid to late 90s and blogging came about, was that suddenly the barrier to entry for sharing the written word and now movies and, and video and music um, is at the lowest point that it's ever been in human history. That you can put, you know, with very, very little uh, uh, investment and effort and talent and other things. No, no, right, exactly. Um, I'm still in the middle of a sentence, so that's okay. I appreciate that, but I, I will, uh, yeah. Um, but you know, with very, very little investment of money, you can reach a worldwide audience, which means that there's a lot of dross out there and a lot of garbage still. But what's interesting about the garbage on the blogs versus the garbage that is zines is that what you write on your blog essentially is delivered in the exact same identical way that, say, Malcolm Gladwell you know, would deliver an essay uh, on NewYorker.com if you were looking at, you know what I'm saying? So suddenly there's this incredible democracy and an incredible opportunity for writers to not only share their work but also develop their own voice and that's obviously the most important thing to do exactly what Liz Gilbert I had to go to a mayonnaise factory and do all sorts of crazy stage shows in order to figure out what I thought was funny and what other people thought were funny you now have the comfort youngster to sit in your own house and and do your blog and everything else and so I, I would just say write 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 but now you get to do it in a way that you can actually build and generate an audience and and learn what they like and I would say that you what I tell people um, is that you need you will need I think he was just asking me Liz I'm not talking to him I'm talking oh. to Leah oh, okay because <laughs> we've talked about this already once before at an Barack Obama fundraiser um, but I you need three things you need um, a certain amount of, of skill and talent um, which you can work on the skills the the talent that's an ephemeral you know but you, you need a, a certain basic gift for this um, or desire for it that will overcome your giftlessness to make you learn how to do something because you want to do it so much. Um, you need luck um, and, and you need a lot, you need dedication and you need perseverance. Um, so those are the three things. And there's a tuxedo. And a tuxedo. Yeah. There's only, as far as I can see and I've kind of waited out, there's only one of those things that you're really in charge of, right? You're not necessarily in charge of how much talent you were given and you're not necessarily in charge of how much luck you're given. Um, the only really controllable uh, 
piece of the equation is how hard you work. So the advice that I give to people is take control of the one third that's in your control and work really hard um, and write your two books. Write your blog. Yeah. And then make that into two books called My Blog. Uh, other questions before? I think we have time for one or two more. We'll do these two guys here. Sir, did you raise your hand? Or Okay, very well. What is, what is your name and where are you calling from? Hi, it's Steve. And what comics do you most admire? What comics? You mean com comedians or comic books? Or comedians? Uh, probably the most, the comics that I've stolen from the most in my life are Peter Cook and um, to some degree um, uh, Peter Sellers, um, certainly Monty Python, a lot of British comedians. Andy Kaufman is, is somebody I admire a lot, though I don't think I, I steal from him a whole lot. Recently, I've been infected with the Paul F. Tompkins disease. Now that I've heard the comedy of Paul F. Tompkins, I can't stop ripping him off uh, without realizing it. And um, uh, you know who is a comedian that I admire a whole lot? Is uh, Justin Long, actually. And he doesn't get a chance to be funny. Uh, in the ads a whole lot because his job is being the straight man, but his timing is so impeccable. I mean, he is naturally a very funny guy. Oh, you should see the fun we have in the outtakes. But, uh, but and that's true, but what people don't appreciate is that his timing is so impeccable that every, everything that I'm able to do bounces off him at, at a rate that just inspires me to come back with something new and interesting, and it's just an amazing, fun relationship. And I'm glad to call him a friend, even though I'm no longer allowed to see or be near him. Uh, yes, sir, you have a question? Yes, uh, which, is, which, is, which is longer, the past or the future? The question is, which is longer, the past or the future? Oh, yes, yeah, sir. Uh, there, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very deep philosophical question. I think the answer is they're equally long in general. For you, though, it might be different. Results may vary. <laughs> Results may vary from case to case. Uh, any other questions? Um, yes. How are we going to do this? Here, would you hand that back to her? And then... Oh, look. Hello. Hello. <laughs> what is your biggest source of inspiration? Sit down, relax. I, I am. Yeah. Um, what's your biggest source of inspiration right now being where you are? Like, how do you get your inspiration? And how do I get my inspiration? Like, who inspires you? What inspires you? What blogs Liz Gilbert inspires you? me, yeah. obviously. Right. I mean, I, I would say, what, she, what Liz won't tell you is that I would say a full, I spent several years imitating her as a writer. Just imitating her, just doing what I would think that you would do, in short, in fiction and in nonfiction, until I was able to figure out ways to be myself. Um, so that uh, basically, it's other people, you know, more than anything else. It's people that I admire so much that I want the world to know about them, and I want what they've got, and so I imitate until I develop something new. Um, Phil Morrison is sitting over there. He directs the Apple ads. And he's been an enormous source of inspiration for me and encouragement. And so I'd like to acknowledge Phil. Hi, Phil. How are you? Uh, and then there's my dad and my wife over there, too. And Sorry, guys. And, um, but, uh, yeah, the, I would just say, you know, Jonathan Colton is somebody that I, you know, uh, he's at home right now with a, well, actually, he's on tour someplace. But um, he's, you know, one of my best and oldest friends who's just such an incredibly creative person that I, try to have him near me as much as possible so that I can continue to benefit from his inspiration to the point that I dress him up as a feral mountain man and make him travel the country with me whenever I can. Um, so it's, it's people, and, 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 and that's the answer. Far more than even the, the Peter Cooks that I've never met in my life. Do you know what I mean? It's the funny people who just didn't have the connections that I did to make it in Hollywood. <laughs> and so I steal their jokes and tell them it's a horrible, tragic story. Thank you. Can I have my microphone back, please? Sir? Um, who have you helped come into the spotlight? I'm Nobody. Thinking, oh, what about Jesse Thorne? Or, What's uh, that? You look nice today. Oh, no, I'm just, uh, I'm just helping Jesse Thorne until I can destroy him. Oh, okay. That's for my own amusement. Uh, I don't know. You know, that's... The question is, who, who I helped come into the spotlight? I mean, there's so many uh, people who have helped me in, you know, enormous ways, whether it is, um, you know, the, the Apple family or Jon Stewart. 
and in smaller ways, much, much, much smaller ways, like Liz Gilbert, much smaller, very subtle ways, <laughs> um, that there is a sense of um, karma that you want to help other people, but you don't, um, you know. But you don't. But you don't, because, yes, exactly. But you don't. It's you feel like you should, but you don't, because you don't need that kind of competition. And so you just try to keep people down as much as possible. So, you know, if you have an opportunity to give someone a voice, say, by handing them a microphone, you don't. You hang on, and you have both microphones, and then you can go, this is me, and this is me, and it's all me right now. But, you know, the reality is that, you know, I still, part of the reason that I was a literary agent, part of the reason why I did the literary variety show that uh, Liz was talking about is because very occasionally in my life, actually not so occasionally, pretty frequently, if I discover or meet or find someone um, that just is so amazing that I want everyone to know about him, whether it's Jonathan Colton or Jesse Thorne, the, the radio, uh, extraordinary uh, radio talent who we now know as America's radio sweetheart and host of Sound of Young America. Um, you know, you just want to spread the word. And luckily, we have an opportunity to spread the word through the internet, and that's happening all the time. And people who like the You Look Nice Today guys, who uh, never would have probably gotten together to do a radio show in their lives, now have an opportunity to do one of the most entertaining podcasts that I've ever had the pleasure to listen to. And then, you know, I try to weasel my way in as well as a guest from time to time. You know, I think that's probably the most important and an exciting thing creatively about technology is that, uh, and particularly the, the internet technology that you've heard so much about, is that you know, th there really is a conversation happening among creative people on a level that leaves the major you know, publishing and distribution corporations out of the equation completely. And that doesn't mean that anyone can make, uh, you know, necessarily make a fortune doing their podcast or writing their blog or doing whatever it is, but you can do what creativity is designed to do is communicate, you know, and to share stuff with each other. And I think that's just one of the most remarkable things. Uh, it's been a long book tour, I have to tell you guys. I'm a little tired, can you tell? I can't hear out of this ear because I just flew from Tennessee this morning. Um, I was, you're applauding for Tennessee? Here's something that's interesting, or are you applauding for being deaf in one ear? <laughs> so I can't, by the, because I can't hear out of this ear, I can't tell by the tenor of your applause what you are applauding for. Did you know that Tennessee for many years had a license plate in the shape of Tennessee? That's taking that's taken a fault and turning it to your advantage. You have a trapezoidal state that looks like a license plate, make your license plate look like that. I think that that's remarkable. Did you know that about, about Tennessee? I knew Florida did. Florida, yeah, Florida had that weird license plate for a while. Didn't that work out. Gun-shaped license plate. I know, plate. I know. In Hawaii, <laughs> you know, the little the little parts were always flying off the back of the car, so it wasn't very good. Um, so, but you know, the, but the the reality is that you know. So I start talking about technology and ramble, and I'm a little less disciplined than I would have been, say, a month ago when I started this tour. But um, if I get a little uh, weepy, that's the reason why. Because um, I'm here with my friend Liz and uh, with all of you people in this place that has been really good to me. So it's really wonderful to see you guys here and sort of really bring the tour for this book to an end here. And I'm very grateful to uh, Apple and Suzanne and Frank and uh, Adam and everybody for having us by. So thanks very much for hanging around. Thank you. This episode of Meet the Author was produced by iTunes and the Apple Store in New York's Soho District. To purchase the audiobook or listen to more episodes in the series, click the link below or search for Meet the Author in the iTunes Store.